Mr. Speaker. You're at the intersection of business and politics. This is the 14th and G podcast from Millman, Castagnetti, Rosen, and Thomas. Now, here's our host, Dean Hinkson. Thank you for setting your podcast dial to 14th and G. I am your host, Dean Hinkson. Happy 2023. And well, happy new Congress while we're at it. This 118th session of the United States Congress has spent the last several weeks organizing itself particularly the House of Representatives and its new Republican majority. But the marathon speaker's election, the new committee chairs, all of it has been overshadowed by the drip, drip, drip of a classified document scandal threatening to consume the Biden White House. So let us take a step back in this week before Congress returns in earnest and break it all down with my Melman consulting colleagues, Republican Bruce Melman and Democrat David Thomas, affectionately known to Marjorie Taylor Greene and us as DT. We're going to cover all of 2023 in 23 minutes, an extra minute. Bruce, David, welcome to 14th and G. Great to be back with you, Dean. DT. Thank you, Dean. And uh, for those of you that weren't watching C-SPAN very late the other night, Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene held up her phone and it said DT on it and attempting to <laughs> hand it to somebody. Now, President Trump was on the line, but I would have thought the way my phone blew up that I was on the phone with uh, Marjorie Taylor <laughs> Greene, which uh, my, my influence uh, does not qu- quite run that far, but I was uh, thrilled to get the notes. Bruce, I'm going to start with you today. 15 ballots to elect Speaker McCarthy, a Freedom Caucus flex, concessions made, tempers flared. We've got a Democratic Senate, a Democratic president. What can, what will this Congress get done? Good grief. There is a lot there to unpack. Uh, you know, you you kind of jump past all of the, what does it all mean? How's it going to operate to the chase? I think they're going to get actually plenty done. There will be fewer home runs, fewer giant pieces of legislation, and a lot more singles and doubles. But I actually do think there are a lot of areas Um, where ultimately uh, we do expect to see congressional uh, success, congressional action, the House uh, moving the things that that need to be moved and that they want to move, maybe break it into four categories, the things they must do. So debt ceiling, annual appropriations won't be drama free, but they'll get done. Defense bill, expiring laws like the Farm Bill and the FAA. There is general alignment on the need to have America stronger in our defense and to push back against the rogues around the world, be they Russia or China or North Korea or Iran. There are a lot of areas that we all work on that uh, that are in need of smarter policies that shouldn't get caught up in the hyperpartisanship, be it telehealth or supply chain resiliency and critical minerals or things like advancing open RAN or even privacy and, Bitcoin and, and blockchain crypto regulation. And then finally, I think there are things that they're going to do on uh, things such as uh, preparedness and resilience and recovery, whether it's in areas of bipartisan agreements such as cyber or, or even in areas such as climate and the environment where there are elements that they agree on and then there are elements they're going to fight on. In my mind, Bruce, in, in the context of the Republican majority in the House, it's not that appropriations aren't going to get done. It's not that the, the, the debt ceiling is not eventually going to get done. The question is, what position will Speaker McCarthy's caucus put him in in relation to M- Minority Leader Jeffries, in relation to, to Majority Leader Schumer and, and President Biden? What 
what position is he left in? We've seen this with uh, Speaker Boehner. We've seen this with Speaker Ryan, where they had to go hat in hand to get Democratic votes and didn't get as good a deal as as they could have gotten had they had a unified caucus behind them. Well, you're right, although like in fouls to give, I mean, Boehner's majorities were 49 and 33, respectively, um, net. And, and uh, Ryan's were 59 and 47 net. McCarthy's is nine. So uh, people need to be a little bit more sympathetic. He's got a really difficult hand to play here. As it is, though, it's, you know, a lot got done in the 117th, ultimately, that was bipartisan. Because the Senate is the Senate, you need 60 to do anything that's not reconciliation. There was always going to be a need for bipartisan deals. In some ways, the challenge is how do you get the McConnell-Schumer deal-making machine, uh, which lost some of their uh, most you know constructive uh, players and people like Senators Portman and Burr uh, and Blunt, uh, and how do you then have them put deals together that if they come over from the Senate can get that bipartisan majority that probably exists if it can get to the floor? Well, David, how about it? Is it all just popcorn time in the peanut gallery for House Democrats? Or do you see some running room here, uh, particularly how uh, Hakeem Jeffries, the incoming minority leader, uh, will operate his caucus. Do you see some running room here to work with the majority? Where do you see it? Uh, it's a great question, uh, Dean. And I think that uh, the most notable thing for the House Democrats over the past two weeks here has been what a good mood uh, the House Dems are in for people who just lost the House. Uh, why are they in a good mood? A, they did uh, better than expected in the uh, midterm elections. B, the transition between you know leaders who had been in place for over 20 years was seamless. So you've got Hakeem Jeffries, Catherine Clark, and Pete Aguilar now in the position one, two, and three, and it was easy. Then you add on top of that, of course, the, the fiasco of the McCarthy speaker election. And there's a lot Democrats have to feel good about going into this. And I think the thing that uh, Jeffries is telling them, each members individually and in the caucus as a whole, is if we stick together, we can succeed. And so I think that is the lesson here. Bruce pointed out uh, Speaker McCarthy has a very small margin to get things done. I remind you every time it is the exact same mar uh, margin that Speaker Pelosi had two years ago. Possible to get things done? It, it sure is. You know, I think Speaker McCarthy is going to be up against the ropes on this. My question is not uh, sort of what will get done by Speaker McCarthy, but will Speaker McCarthy be there when these things actually get done? Can he survive a debt ceiling vote, which is going to happen sooner than we think? Uh, can he get through the appropriations process? Um, Republicans, we've seen it time and time again, they can't help touching the hot stove that is a government shutdown. It started with Gingrich. It happened under uh, uh, Boehner and Ryan. We're going to see it again. Uh, government shutdowns. I, I, I don't know why Republicans think that is an effective uh, tool to get done when they want, when it always ends up burning them. And then we'll have things like, you know, undoubtedly we'll have emergency supplemental bills in Ukraine. What I agree with Bruce uh, totally on is that these deals are going to start in the Senate. Senator Schumer, Senator uh, McConnell can get done and then send back over to the House where you will look for those four or five uh, sane Republicans to help push these important policies through. And so will my will my Democratic colleague yield for a question on this uh, era of good feelings for the Democrats? Yeah, please. So, you know, something I was watching and wondering about was as, you know, uh, McCarthy did his best to negotiate. And I'm not sure there was any other strategy that could have been pursued. I kept thinking if I were the Dems, I know uh, uh, Leader Jeffries liked to quote Napoleon when your enemy is uh, is self-destructing, uh, stay out of his way or something to that effect. However, 
I think I might have considered uh, throwing a few votes to McCarthy on the theory of if I don't help McCarthy, he will keep cutting the deals with the rebels. And then there will be rules in the House that makes it harder to advance the Biden agenda where we need to advance the Biden agenda. And I recognize the, the problem was not of Hakeem Jeffries making. By deciding to let the Republicans twist in the wind, you end up giving outsized power to the right wing of the right wing that the Democrats dislike. It sort of reminded me of the tens of millions that the Democrats spent in the primaries trying to make sure that the more radical Republican candidates won. Now, the purpose of that was to help make the seats more winnable. I understood it and it turned out it worked okay. Uh, but it sure seems to me the Dems would be better off if a lot of the concessions hadn't been made and it was within their power to suddenly throw some votes on, say, the third ballot to McCarthy and boom, fights over. And he didn't cut some of these deals, uh, changing the rules committee and other things that you don't think were good reforms. So, uh, uh, Bruce, I, I love the the, the the fairy tale land that you you're, you live in here. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I don't even know quite where to start here because it could uh, Hakeem Jeffries, Catherine Clark and Pete Aguilar approached Speaker McCarthy and tried to cut a deal with him? I guess they could have, but he was much too busy trying to cut deals with Matt Gates, Marjorie Taylor Greene, and George Santos. Those are the people that he was appealing to to get his votes to get it done. But, but now, let's say this would happen. Let's say this would have happened. Does that mean that Jim Jordan is not going to be in charge of the Judiciary Committee and we're going to put Jerry Nadler? Is that going to be the deal we're going to cut here? And how long does McCarthy survive under that regime? It's it's nonsense. You know, there's a reason why it didn't happen last week. It is because it's not the way the House operates. Well, I think, but I but I think just, just to make sure you're destroying the right straw man here, my point wasn't cut a deal. There's, you couldn't have cut a deal with McCarthy. I agree. My point was before we came up with a single member can move to vacate the chair, if unexpectedly on the third ballot, you know, let's just say it was Speaker, it was former Speaker Pelosi and, and Hoyer, five, 10, however many you needed, Dems crossed over and said, you know what, we'll pick McCarthy. Suddenly McCarthy is the speaker. It's over. No deal. You didn't cut a thing. You know Jordan's going to be Jordan. But now Matt Gates or MTG or you pick whomever, you know, a Bobert can't on a single person move to vacate. I assume you'd agree that you'd rather have motion to vacate require five than operate by a single member. You could have prevented that. And do you think for a second there wouldn't have been a motion to vacate immediately as soon as he's sworn in by the hundreds of Republicans <laughs> who didn't support this deal, Bruce? It's like it, it, it's uh, it's it's silly. I wish uh, things I worked that way. I do. I do have to point out that uh, Congressman Santos and Congressman Taylor Green were uh, were always in the McCarthy camp. We, we know judiciary is going to be a bit of a food fight. That's the nature of that committee. I'm more intrigued with, with a committee like one of the more consequential committees in the House, the Energy and Commerce Committee, where incoming chairwoman Kathy McMorris-Rogers uh, and ranking member Frank Pallone already have a demonstrated uh, working relationship. They passed a privacy bill. Uh, out of committee uh, at the end of the last Congress. that That's one example. Are there other working relationships? Is that one that can be productive? Uh, yeah, boy, I, I think you're right here, Dean. I'm excited to see what uh, may happen on the Energy and Commerce Committee. These are chair and ranking uh, member who've worked together before, 
who came awfully close to, uh, or I guess shouldn't say awfully close, they did advance privacy legislation here, didn't get to the president's desk, but they uh, they worked on those issues together. That's definitely one committee I think that uh, hopefully can do some bipartisan work here and not just focus on uh, sort of the partners in, in fighting. I agree with you. Well, and you could add two more. Uh, look at House Financial Services, where uh, Waters and McHenry worked very well together on things like crypto regulation. And I think McHenry sure and did. Waters will also work really well together. Look at appropriation. You know, these are two committees, obviously, uh, our team is very close to and works with a lot. It's uh, Cake Rangers worked across the aisle. Appropriators kind of always have. And and I think you're going to see, uh, it's a good point, Dean, on commerce, energy and commerce. But, but I think there's a bunch there. Like we were saying, you know, if you go below what Fox is and MSNBC are railing about at any given moment, there's a lot of productive stuff that got done in the 117th and that needs to get done in the 118th. And a couple of new uh, select committees uh, set up by the House. The Committee on the Weaponization of Government uh, did not get bipartisan support, but uh, the Committee on uh, China did get bipartisan support. Uh, China hawkery uh, certainly has a bipartisan caucus. Uh, what do we see happening there? Well, uh, I'm happy to start. That's going to be one of the most interesting, uh, important, and, and dangerous slash dramatic committees out there. I mean, there is, you're right, it's one of the most, maybe the single most bipartisan policy issue in Washington is concerned that under President Xi, China has moved from a somewhat competitor with whom we could work that maybe was evolving into a meaningful global threat. Uh, from whom we need to decouple. There's going to be a lot of oversight hearings. They don't have legislative power, but they've got subpoena power. Uh, there are going to be hearings on origins of COVID. There are going to be hearings on the Uyghurs. There's going to be hearings on you know, what businesses know and what they're willfully not uh, making themselves aware of. There are going to be looks at supply chain resiliency and, and where are areas where Americans you know, whether it's critical minerals or the input uh, materials that go into uh, pharmaceuticals, you know, where are we dependent upon China continuing to be willing to sell us things that that is a uh, that that are dependencies we can't afford? Watch that space. Chairman Gallagher is a serious person. I bet that'll be a very bipartisan committee, and uh, and it's going to maybe have, even though it won't write legislation or pass legislation itself, it may have a bigger impact on policy than any other committee these next two years. Bruce, I think it's a good point. You know, House Republicans have subpoena power for oversight. Senate Democrats, uh, they did not have uh, they did not have unilateral subpoena power under the power sharing agreement in the 5050 Senate. Uh, but now with an outright majority, uh, they do have that subpoena power. So if you're a if you're a Fortune CEO, and certainly if you're doing their government relations here in D.C., there's got to be some concern there uh, of getting of getting caught up in this vortex between House and Senate subpoenas. One thousand uh, percent. It's co- incoming is coming. Uh, if you're doing a lot on ESG, expect a subpoena from the House. Why are you so woke? If you're not doing a lot on ESG, expect a subpoena from the Senate. Why are you ignoring the climate? Um, there are real risks, uh, and I think there's a likelihood politically of counter-programming too. So you guys want to hold a hearing on Hunter Biden? We're going to hold a hearing on the Trump family and the Trump organization. You guys want to hold a hearing on documents found next to the Corvette? We're going to hold a hearing on documents under the ping pong table at Mar-a-Lago. You know, you send our guys to the uh, to the hospital. We're going to send your guys to the morgue. It's 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 going to be an era 
of uh, of high peril and, and high drama on House and Senate oversight. Well, we talked a little bit about the Senate here. We know less about the Senate going into this week back. Uh, their committees are not fully organized yet. But one of the more intriguing things is this is this sort of bipartisan gang coming together on immigration led by Senators Cinema and Tillis. They've done a bipartisan codel to the border. We know there's going to be lots of nominations. What do we see shaping up here in the Senate? We've said a lot of things have to start there. Where do yeah. you see these guys headed in the early going? Yeah. So, uh, Dean, uh, so first of all, for this coming week, uh, the, the House and Senate are, are both out here, but that doesn't mean there won't be uh, things going on behind the scenes here. Uh, when they get back the week of the 23rd, we expect quite a bit of movement on uh, uh, committee appointments. Uh, we expect that um, the, the committees will be pretty uh, fully constituted uh, before the end of January. So that allowed a committee work to go in here. What you said about nominations is absolutely right. If nothing else, uh, Senator Schumer will continue to have that nomination machine churning uh, and and churning more efficiently than it did in a 50-50 Senate. So that's uh, that's one thing we're going to see. Uh, look, you know, you're a you're a veteran of uh, many Senate gangs yourself. Here, uh, it seems to be where senators really enjoy getting things done. Uh, and we've seen the start of what could be some progress on immigration in the coming year. Probably the thorniest of all public policy issues that. Uh, the House and Senate have not figured out really for 20 years on how to move forward. But, you know, Senator Tillis is a, is an interesting fellow because I feel like he's been at the center of a lot of these deals uh, and he doesn't talk about it a lot. Uh, he's managed to sort of keep a lower profile, which which may be by design. You know, Senator Sinema seems to always be in the uh, spotlight as well. And there will be a handful of others. Can they come up with a deal that can bring 60 together? It's a it's a high bar to get there. But uh you know, if they're already working this two weeks in, maybe they can get it done in the next two years. Well, Dean, and actually, given that you were a Senate chief and that you served uh, for well over a decade in the Senate, interested in your take. You know, the, uh, Senator McConnell is is uh, you and I might say the uh, the greatest Senate leader of all time. He's certainly up in the in the in the ranks. But losing a Portman, a Burr, a Blunt, a Toomey, that's that you hate to give up, folks, with so much legislative credibility, bipartisan capability, uh, and, and kind of reliability. If you're a leader, I'm interested in your take on yeah. his capacity to deliver the kind of deals he did in the 117th. This is, you're right, this is a very different Senate Republican caucus. Uh, he faced opposition in the leadership election uh, led by uh, Senator Rick Scott from Florida. Uh, I think for the first time uh, since he's been uh, Senate Republican leader, you know, uh, the next generation of senators has already come of age around Mitch McConnell. Uh, and the next generation of senators uh, is is already in the door. So this is going to much like McCarthy in the House. Leader McConnell has got has got a bit of a management job there. But you know, you look back at at what we saw at the end of the 117th Congress on on marriage equality, on infrastructure. There is a group of senators that has learned the lesson of their power. Uh, when they come together, and it wasn't always with you know with McConnell's outright support. Uh, that they cut these deals. But, you know, the Senate is a place where where a group of senators can, you know, can can sort of work their will uh, if they can get enough folks uh, to come along. And so you look and say, gosh, I can't see comprehensive immigration reform or, or really any immigration related measure coming to fruition in this Congress. But th this is a group of senators that is feeling some momentum and, and feeling some ability to cut some really 
uh, difficult deal. Well, David, uh, we, we we would be remiss not to talk about the story that has that has sort of consumed Washington here uh, over the last week, uh, making a pretty tough case on President Trump. Uh, not that the case wasn't valid on. Uh, his handling of classified information. It seems almost daily now for the last week, we found a new batch of documents somewhere between President Biden's think tank and President Biden's house in Wilmington. It sure does undercut the case against Trump. We now have two uh, independent counsels investigating the matter. What do you make of all this? And and how, how much does this hurt President Biden's ability, not only to govern here in the short term, but to make the case for running for re-election. <laughs> That's a mouthful, uh, Dean, here. I thought for sure when you said we we're going to talk a little bit about the thing that has uh, dominated the tension would be the soft landing of the uh, inflation uh, uh, sort of uh, coming down here and the economy <laughs> starting to turn around and Biden's numbers coming up. Boy, he's looking good going into re-election. I feel like this documents uh, thing is a, is an unforced error that is going to be a sideshow that is tailor-made for hothead Republicans in the House who are going to prove themselves to be the hypocrites that they are. Those who wanted to ignore uh, what went on in the basement of Mar-a-Lago are now uh, shocked, shocked uh, that the uh, Justice Department isn't doing more to look in what was going on in Joe Biden's garage. My guess is at the end of the day, this has to be a, a standoff at the end, even though the situations are uh, very, very different. I, I, I shudder even say apples and oranges because I'm not even sure that effectively describes the difference between the two. You know, documents that were found at the Biden residence uh, uh, and at his office in D.C., they did what responsible people do. You call up the archives, you call up the Justice Department, you say, hey, we found these things and we turn them in. What happened down in Mar-a-Lago was the archives reached out and they wouldn't give them back. And so eventually they have to get served and go get them back themselves. So it really is apples and oranges well, uh, apples and oranges or, you know, a bunch of apples versus fewer apples. But uh, my take is, as always, the, the biggest unforced error was the unnecessarily sanctimonious Biden quote. How could anyone be that irresponsible? You know, and, and admittedly, look, the Trump guys uh, violated the, the Records Act because they didn't care. The Biden folks, uh, you know, seemingly didn't do what you're supposed to do to the sufficient ex uh, extent of it. The reality is it's hard to pick an administration where you can't find somebody. I mean, everything gets classified. There's tons of documents. When people leave the White House and a new administration comes in, stuff moves around. If they could have only resisted the moralizing and the sanctimonious quote, yeah, there's a big distinction, but but uh, unfortunately, the quotes out there, it's kind of like there was always a Trump tweet. There's always a Biden quote. You know, why why didn't the Saudis want to be more helpful when we were looking for them to pump more oil? Well, it could have been the quote. I guarantee you I will end fossil fuels that might have stuck in the craw of the Saudi. Uh, it's it is. It's funny how there's just so many of these just, you know, sanctimonious statements that, that end up coming back to bite them in the butt. I, I'm put in mind of quote that's attributed to President Obama. Uh, and I'll paraphrase, uh, never underestimate Joe Biden's ability to screw things up. Well, that's, that's in some ways, that's even unfair. It's just he, you know, and this isn't even a gaffe. It's just this is when, DT, I would use the Hakeem Jeffries. If you're if the opponents screw themselves up, leave it alone and don't need to give some statement about how morally inferior they are, because, you know, the Biden folks seem like they tried to avoid that. The Trump folks. It's sort of like, you know, to, to put a uh, the world's uh, most obnoxious analogy, there's always going to be flatulence in public. The Trump administration was kind of a pull my finger sort of group. Uh, the Biden folks uh, had more of a pardon me. But if you just shut up about it, you wouldn't look so bad.
Well, boys, here's what I know. Buckle up. Uh, the roller coaster has click, click, clicked its way to the top of the hill, uh, and we're all about to plunge into the 118th Congress. As it gets underway in earnest, we will be back to break it all down, cover all of 2023 in 23 minutes. Bruce Melman, David Thomas, thank you for joining me on 14th and G. Great to be back. Thanks, my friend. Thanks for listening to today's podcast brought to you by the lobbying firm of Melman, Castagnetti, Rosen, and Thomas. For more, just type 14th and G podcast into your favorite search engine or look for 14th and G wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe. Beam me up, Mr. Speaker.